Jesus Christ, that is the truth of who you are. That is the truth of what you've done, crucified and raised to life. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, and there is none like you. You are reigning over all right now, reigning in power and majesty on high. And there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved other than yours, the name of Jesus Christ. None come to the Father but through you. And so, Father, we humble ourselves under you right now. Jesus Christ, we exalt you in this place right now. Maybe so in our hearts, not just with our lips, but in our hearts, God. Saying, you are king, I am not. And I'm humbling myself right now, choosing to do that under your authority. And so, God, I pray right now also, we would remember your compassion and mercy and love for us. And you say, cast your anxiety on me because I care for you. And so whatever distractions may be eating away in our minds or our hearts today, right now, in faithfulness to your word, we would just take a moment and cast those anxieties on you. Saying, Jesus, take my job, take this conflict, take this relationship, take this test. Whatever it is, God, I cast that on you because you care for me and I choose to humble myself under the mighty hand of the Lord. And Father, as we open up your word now, I pray that we would come under its authority with expectation and teachable hearts, not prideful, entitled hearts, but teachable hearts that say, speak to me, Lord, I need to change. Please change me to be more like you. Holy Spirit, guard my mouth and say what you want to say to the church today. And Jesus Christ, may you be exalted more than you've ever been as Lord over this place. In Jesus' name, church, if you agree, say amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning, church. Let's open up our Bibles to John chapter 5. Open up our Bibles, John 5. Verses 9 to 18. If you do not have a copy of God's Word with you, just put your hand up right now. Our ushers are coming forward, and we want to put a Bible in your lap so you can continue to follow along verse by verse, line by line, through John chapter 5, verses 9 to 18. And it's on page 519 in those Bibles that are being handed out. And so for those of you who were here last week, you'll remember we started a new series called Life in the Sun. Life in the Sun, the Gospel of John, part two. And you notice there the part two. Why is that part two? Well, we did part one last fall, chapters one to four of the Gospel of John. And now uh, we're working on part two, which is chapters five to seven. And the theme, if you recall, from chapters one to four was this. Jesus revealed the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Well, as we saw Jesus increasingly being revealed and his lordship being revealed over the people he was choosing to reveal it to, whether through signs, through turning the water into wine, through healing the official son, whether through teaching, through Nicodemus, the woman at the well about true worship, as we see him increasingly revealing his lordship, we also see increasing rejection and hostility against him. And this is part two, chapters five to seven, is Jesus rejected. And so last week, we started out in chapter 5, the third sign that Jesus performed. So he did the water turning into wine in John 2. He healed the official son in John 4. And now we're here in the third of seven signs that Jesus has done throughout the book of John. And this one was healing the lame man at the pool of Bethesda. 
And we started part one of this last week, and we're going to look at the second part today. Now, it's very important that we hear signs from God. There's a lot of people here, so we can get a lot of different ideas about what the purpose for these things for. So often when we think, God, give me a sign, it's like, give me what I want. Help me with what I need. Jesus says the purpose that he does signs is not ultimately about that. We have to recall that signs from God, and you'll see it on the screen, signs from God are meant to point us back to God. Signs from God are meant to point us back to God, and they are done to show us something more about himself, his character, his nature, his authority, his sovereignty, his power, that life is found in him, some aspect of himself. And ultimately, each of the seven signs that are recorded in the book of John and the countless others that John 20 verse 30 says he did had one ultimate purpose. And they were all this. Look at it in John 20, 31. Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these ones are written. These seven ones are written and the countless others throughout the book that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. There is the purpose for every sign that Jesus ever did. To believe that he is the Christ, he is the Messiah, there is no other name, there is no other way to the Father, and that by believing in the Son of God, you may have life in his name. And so the purpose of this specific sign was to confirm that Jesus Christ is the Son of God who is equal with God and who is Lord over all. Jesus Christ, equal with God, all authority, all power, all sovereignty, all dominion. And that's why it's a sign of lordship. It's a sign of lordship. And so why is it so important that of all the things Jesus could have done to reveal this, why is it so important that he emphasized this aspect of himself as Lord over all. And why is it so important that he put it in the book of John that we would be confronted by it today? Because there's a major problem. And we brought it in here with us today, and we will leave with it as well. And it's in every part of the world around us. And here's the problem we face today. Ready? We often don't want to submit to Christ as Lord over our lives. You and I, the truth is, we often do not want to submit to Christ as Lord over our lives. Why? Quite simply, because we want to be the Lord over our lives. And here, to make matters worse, we live in a culture that promotes us being Lord over our lives. Advertisements like, have it your way. You deserve this. You deserve a break today. You deserve to have the authority and have people listen to you and not have to listen to others. You deserve for people to meet your expectations of them. You deserve to have what you want when you want and do what you want to have what you want. So the question we're confronted with today that needs answering, write this down, is quite simply this. Whose lordship are you submitting to over each part of your life? Over your finances, over your families, over your kids, over your marriage, over your job, over your entertainment, 
Whose lordship are you ultimately submitting to? And you say, why is that so important? Because here's the truth, loved ones. In the end, this is the only question that matters. When you and I stand before the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, Jesus Christ, this is the only question that will matter. Who is truly Lord over your life? And if you're a Christian here, can I, can I encourage you with this? If, you've, if you're born again in Jesus Christ and have submitted to him as your Lord and Savior, um, our lips, I doubt very much, your lips and mine would say, I don't want Jesus as Lord over my life. But let me ask you to probe deeper. What is your heart saying truly? And here in our text today, we're going to see two truths that we must live by if we're to believe that Jesus is the Lord over all, first off, and then live our lives increasingly under his lordship as he commands. I love this text. Let's get ready. Let's stand to honor the authority of God's word. We're going to read John 5, verses 9 to 18. Two truths that we must live by. Look at 9. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. And they asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn, as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. Verse 18. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. And all God's people said, Amen. You may be seated. You may be seated. Such a stunning text right here that we need to dive in. And the first thing we see is this. Jesus reveals his lordship through his instruction. He gives life to all. He offers life to all. And the question that we're confronted with from these first six verses is this. Jesus commands sin no more. Will I obey his word? If he offers life through his word and he commands sin no more, will I obey it? So let's get some context here. Jesus has come to town In the first eight verses there, we saw nine verses, Jesus has come to town into Jerusalem for one of the five major feasts that were held annually. We don't know what it was, but we know it's one of the five bigs that the Jewish people still celebrate today. And as such, every male from 12 years and up crowded, made made the pilgrimage from wherever they were in the nation to come to Jerusalem on behalf of their families, to worship and celebrate. So at this time, most scholars believe there were about 800,000 to a million men packed into this walled city of Jerusalem for this event. And so here's Jesus. He goes up for the festival. He walks into the pool of Bethesda. 
Now here's the pool of Bethesda. This is a mock-up of what uh, it looked like just beside the temple in the old city. This is the pool of Bethesda, known as the House of Mercy. Now what we need to understand is that this was a very superstitious place where invalids, those who, as we see in the previous eight verses, lame, blind, paralyzed, they would go and make their, their voyage to get to the house of mercy, to get to the pool of Bethesda, and they would wait on those colonnades around to, watch, to not be beat down by the sun. They'd wait there, and they'd just sit there watching the water. Why? Because the superstition was that one, an angel would come down and then stir the water. And when they saw the water go, the first one, the first invalid to get into the pool, they believed would be healed of whatever was disease they had. And so everyone's watching the water. And so here Jesus walks into this place. I love that, eh? I can't get over that. The master of mercy walks into the house of mercy. I just, I love that thought. He walks in over to this man who had been crippled for 38 years. He'd been unable to walk. He's laying there in one of the colonnades. There he is. Jesus walks over to him in this crowded place. He saw him. He knew him. And here's what he asks him. In verse 6, he says, do you want to be healed? The word healed there is, do you want to be made whole? Do you want to be healed? And then he tells him in verse 8, after a gruff response of this man, like, yeah, whatever, Jesus, no one's helping me, and blah, blah, blah. Jesus responds to this man in verse 8. He says, get up, take up your mat, and walk. Like that. Heals him with a word. And then you see in verse 9, at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and walked. Now, don't miss, that's where we are. That's how we got here, okay? Now, don't miss the back half of 9 where it says this. Now, that day was the Sabbath. Now, when you read that, a detail like that, you have to understand Every word of God's word is inspired by the Holy Spirit. It's from God himself. So why would he put that truth in there? Why would he give us that tidbit of information? What does it matter if it was the Sabbath? It matters big time. That's the whole point of the sign. Watch this. 9b. So that was the Sabbath. Christ specifically healed this man. He chose to specifically walk into the house of mercy in the pool of Bethesda and heal this man on the Sabbath. Jesus Christ, we have to understand, never does random. Okay? Jesus doesn't do random. He's got a purpose, a point to it. Now, we have to understand what the Sabbath is to get a full picture. So, here we go. Sabbath. What is the Sabbath? Well, it's the seventh day of the Jewish week. It's Saturday. Okay? The Sabbath is a Saturday, and it starts, even today, from the Friday night, from the time the first star comes out, to, and it goes till Saturday night when the first star comes out in the evening. All right? So it's Saturday, and, and the word Sabbath itself means to rest or cease from work. Rest or cease from work. And this day was to be set apart as a day of rest and worship to the Lord. It's set apart as a day of rest from your work of employment. To rest and to worship the Lord. Now we have to understand this. The Sabbath was a big deal and still is today in Israel a very big deal. Why? Because it's number four out of the Ten Commandments. They look at this. It's like this is the bigs 
all right? Number four of the Ten Commandments, you can read about it in Exodus 28 to 11. And where did this come from? Well, we see God modeled this during the creation week in Genesis 2. God modeled taking a Sabbath. God didn't need to take a Sabbath. It's not like he, he tires out, but he modeled it for us to do that. And the Sabbath was designed by God for man to be a blessing to them. To be a blessing to them. And yet what happened over the years, as so much of what God intends in his commands for our good, over the years, the Jewish leaders, and that's who he's talking about here, the Jews in verse 10, the Greek word there is uh, ludeoi, which means Jewish leaders, they had turned the blessing of the Sabbath into a burden by adding, the religious leaders of the Jews, they added hundreds of their own rules and laws to God's commands. And why would they do this? It's called the Mishnah, the oral tradition of the teachers. They say, here's what God says, but let's add all these other rules that build a fence around God's commands so we don't even come close to breaking them. And if you break these rules, what happened was, it's the same as breaking God's command now. You see what happened? They've replaced man's preferences with God's commands. And now they're upholding these and expecting the people underneath them to uphold them. And if they don't, they break the law, saying it's God's law. So they built this fence around God's commands to keep people from coming there. And if you broke the Sabbath, it's a capital offense where they would literally take you out of the city and stone you until you were dead. This is a big deal. Jesus healed them on the Sabbath. And even today, I was reminded, I used to live in Jerusalem, and even today, on the Sabbath, it's called Shabbat, they have what's called Shabbat elevators where pushing the button to get to the floor is considered an act of work and you're considered breaking the Sabbath. And so their elevators, they just stop at every single floor all day, up and down. And you just wait for it to open on your floor. That still goes on today because pushing the button would be considered work. So you see what's happened here. This is what's going on in this text. And this is why they say to the man, look at verse 10. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews, the Jewish leaders, said to the man who's been healed, Hey, it's the Sabbath. And it's not lawful for you to take up your bed. What? Hold on a second. You don't think they knew who this man was after 38 years of sitting at the pool of Bethesda, watching him get carried there day after day? You don't think these Jewish leaders knew who he was? And look at the first thing they say. Hey, you're carrying your bed. Yeah, he's carrying his bed. He's been crippled for 38 years. But notice what happens. Because in the Sabbath law, what one of the traditions they've made, one of the extra-biblical rules was, you can't pick up an object and carry it from one place to another. That was considered work. So their self-righteousness is blinding them to who Jesus is and what he's done because they're so focused on their legalism. Hey, you can't pick up your bed. Loved ones, can I just stop right there? 
First thing we need to be exhorted in today is this. We do the same thing. We do the exact same thing, loved ones. Let's not jump all over the Pharisees here. There's a little Pharisee inside all of us. And the reality is this. Do not let your self-righteousness blind you from seeing who Christ is through his work. Because what happens is this. We see God work in the life of another. And if we're focused on ourselves, we start to criticize that. Well, why is God working that way in their life? Why doesn't he work that way in mine? And then we start to nitpick it. And instead of celebrating God's work in the life of another, we criticize it. We see this going on all around us. And we do it in our lives, whether consciously or subconsciously, all the time. Why is God blessing them that way? Why isn't he blessing me that way? This is what's going on. Now look what happens in verse 11. Keep going. So the Jew, Jewish leader said to the man who had been healed, It's the Sabbath. It's not lawful for you to take up your bed. Look at 11. But the, he, the lame man who was lame, not anymore, answered them, uh, The man who healed me. That man said to me, take up your bed and walk. See what he does there? He knows he's in trouble. What's he doing? Thanks, bub. You're blame shifting. And he's like, it was him. It was that guy. He, he just told me to do it. He just told me. You blame him. Come after him. I know it's a capital offense. I'm not going to say, yeehaw. It's that guy's fault. He's blame shifting on to Jesus. See, and that gives Jesus, that just gives this miracle such a whole other angle to see Jesus' mercy. This guy did nothing to deserve to be healed. Here he's throwing Jesus under the bus, the very guy who healed him. You know, there's nothing respectable about this man that we should, I gotta be like him. Listen, come on. He's throwing him under the bus. So he blames shifts. So the other guy told me, and I look at 12 and 13. It gets better. So they asked him, Who's the man who said, you can't you just hear their tone? Who's the man who said, you take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. See, what happened was when Jesus healed this man, all of a sudden, and rightly so, there's this big crowd. This, the word crowd there means mob or multitude. So they start coming around, and Jesus withdraws, and look what happens next. Verse 14, afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said, see you are well, see you are well. See, a while later, Jesus, quote unquote, finds this man. Listen, when there's a million men packed into a city, what are the chances you're going to run into someone randomly? You think Jesus does random? Jesus doesn't randomly, hey, there's the guy I heal. He seeks the guy out. In his omniscience and his wisdom. He's coming back for another lap with this guy. And look what he says to him. He finds him and he says, see you are well. You could translate it this way. Look at you. Look, look at you. You're walking. You're in the temple. You're worshiping. Notice the exclamation point there. You're worshiping. You're, you're jumping around. Look at you. You got a new start. Now contrast Jesus' response there with the Pharisees' response. Hey, pick up your bed. Why'd you do that? You're breaking the law. Here's Jesus. Look at you. See, there, there is the 
definitive clarity on a heart that is humble versus a heart that is filled with pride. Seeing the response and the work of God in one's life. It is the response of one who loves the Lord more than loves themselves. There it is. Look at you. Look at you. Not, hey, yeah, but you did that wrong. Really? Which are you? Which am I? Now look what he says. Look at you. Falls with a command. Sin no more. Sin no more. That nothing worse may happen to you. The word sin there in the Greek means to miss God's mark. Means acting in a way that is contrary to God's word that he's given us to bring life. To sin is to miss the mark. And Jesus is saying here, leave your sinful ways. Sin no more. Leave your sinful ways that are contrary to my will, that are contrary to my commands, and sin no more. Now, it's very important here. We see this. This implies that the man's condition, when you read it, the man's condition of paralysis was a result of his sin. Notice, it was a result of his living in opposition to the word of God. Sin no more. Shows Jesus' authority over sin. If sin was the thing that led him into that place, here's Jesus healing him, showing his authority over sin. That's awesome. Over the power of sin. But he says, sin no more. Now, we have to clarify. Read it in the context of the doctrine of scripture, all of it. The New Testament clearly states that not all disease that we have is a direct result of sinful actions that we do. Okay, let's be clear on that. But for sure, some of it is. You have an addiction of alcohol that you're just going through and your liver bottoms out. That's a result of sinful behavior. You smoke your whole life and you end up with cancer. It's a result of sinful behavior. Your marriage ends up destroyed and you've been looking at pornography for the whole time. That's a result. There are direct consequences that we have if we engage in unchecked sin. You live in gluttony and you die of a heart attack. So much of it is because you've been living with lack of self-control in your eating. And I get people have heart attacks in other ways, but hands down, if we gluttonize ourselves, it's going to go bad for us. And notice why he says to do this. Sin no more. Why? Go back to the text. Verse 14. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. Why do you do this? So things don't get worse, buddy. You've been given a new chance. It's going to go bad if you go back to that lifestyle. If you go back to engaging in that. See, you'll have an immediate consequence, Jesus is saying, in this life of going back to living in the sinful actions and lifestyles and reaping the consequences of that. But there's also, he's prodding deeper here, there's also an eternal consequence. Eternal separation from God in hell, which is the end result of a sinful life not saved in the Lord Jesus Christ. Sin no more that it may not get worse for you. 
That's a word for our hearts today, loved ones. So often, we deal, when we tolerate sin in our lives, it's just like playing with fire. And Proverbs is very clear. Can anyone play with fire close to his bosom and expect he's not going to get burned? It's coming. Because that's what it's designed to do. The father of sin, Satan, ensures that if it's not brought before the Lord. And so right here, we see the lordship of Christ in defeating the power of sin over this man's life and offering a new life in him if, here's the if, if this man would humble himself under the instruction or the word, the command of Christ, which would lead the man to live a new life in him. Sin, no. And so here's Jesus is saying, he says the same thing to us today. I want your restoration. He looks at this man, finds him in the temple, and he says, I want your restoration, not your devastation. And Jesus is saying that same thing to us today. I want your restoration. I've given my life for you to have it. And I've given you my word that leads you to it. I don't want your devastation. Which do you want? The devastation in your marriage, in your family, in your personal life, in your other relationships. I want your restoration, not your devastation. But will you leave your sinful ways and obey my word by my power to see that happen? Will you surrender to me as your Lord and Savior? Because there is no hope of having that without it. Don't bring that sin in your life or it's going to hurt you. You and I aren't strong enough to deal with sin in our lives. Only Jesus Christ's power in our life is. He's the only one who can break it in this man's life and in ours. But here, here's the thing. Today, we live in a world that says this. This is why it's so hard for us. There's a sinful flesh, even though the spirit is in us, he's doing war with the flesh. Listen, we live in a world today that says, don't leave your sinful ways, celebrate them. Celebrate your sexual immorality. Celebrate drunkenness. It's the thing to do on the weekends. Celebrate getting high. We'll make it easier for you to do that. Celebrate it. Celebrate your idolatry of things. Just get more stuff. Pack your house full. Celebrate that idolatry. Celebrate the idolatry of control and your pride. Celebrate the fact that you can have your best life now. We live in a world that promotes it. Don't leave your sinful ways. Celebrate your sinful ways. Because here's the thing. Sin always overpromises and underdelivers. They say this, the world says, your sin, you engage in that sin, it's going to bring you joy. Jesus says, it's going to bring you a lot of frustration, bro. It's going to bring you joy. No, it's going to bring you a lot of frustration. This world says, it's going to bring you peace. Jesus says, if you keep going there, it's going to bring you a ton of anxiety and fear. Sin no more. He said, this world says, oh, it's going to bring you happiness if you just get more stuff. And if you could just control people. And if people just do what you want, when you want, for you, how? It's going to bring you a ton of happiness. Jesus says, that's going to discourage you and every single one that you try to put that expectation on. 
This world says, oh, engaging in your sin is going to bring you hope. Jesus is like, it's going to bring major disappointment when it bottoms out and doesn't deliver. Sin no more. This world says, it'll bring you satisfaction. Jesus is like, it'll bring you emptiness. I'm the only one who can satisfy you. This world says, oh, it'll bring you freedom. Don't listen to the word of God. It's just a bunch of rules and regulations, and you've got to live under a rock and become a monk. Jesus is like, I came that they may have life. And it's for freedom that Christ has set you free. Don't submit again to a yoke of slavery. You say, if you engage in that sinful behavior, it's, it's just going to give you status. You know, cut, cut corners and integrity at work and lie a little bit here and a little bit there. It's going to give you status. And Jesus says, it's going to leave you wanting. Sin no more. If you engage in that sin, you get in that relationship and you're, you're sexually engaged in that, you're not married and you're doing this, oh, it's going to bring you such comfort. Jesus is like, you're on a one-way ticket to brokenness if it's not repented of. You think you can hold fire and not get burned. It ain't going to happen, loved one. I've tried. See, what Jesus is saying here, what's true in the first century when he's talking is the exact same truth in the 21st century right now. And it's quite simply this. One pastor said it this way. When you choose to sin, you choose to suffer. Every time. When you choose to sin, you choose to suffer. The burn is coming. And here's the thing. We, we often think, well, it's my decisions, it's my life, so I can engage in... Listen, do you know the way sin's designed? To always have collateral damage. If I'm engaging in sin, the impact is going to go on with those that are closest to me. It's going to wreck those relationships. It's not a matter of if, it's just a matter of when, if it's not brought in repentance to Jesus Christ. This is, a big, this is what Jesus is saying, sin no more. That you may have life in me. I've given you all you need for life and godliness through salvation. I've given you the power to overcome that addiction. You don't have to go down that road. How do we know this? John 10, 10. Here's what Jesus says. The thief, that is Satan, comes only to steal, kill, and sin's end game, destroy. That's where sin leads you. There's the road. Steal, kill, and destroy. But look what Jesus says. I came... So that they may have life and have it abundantly. Not that you're going to get everything you ever want. You're going to have a Porsche in your driveway. He says, you're going to have me. I'm going to satisfy you. You're going to walk in increasing holiness and righteousness and see my favor and see my blessing on your life. To see my presence manifested. So question, Jesus commands us to sin no more question we're confronted with, will you obey his word? Will you? Will you? Do you truly believe that this will lead you to life through Jesus Christ? And if you're here and you've never repented of your sin and confessed Christ as your Lord and Savior, hey, hey, here's the first step to obeying his word and overcoming your sin of unbelief. To turn from your sin and believe that Jesus Christ is fully God and fully man. And he came to earth to die for your sin and mine upon the cross and pay the penalty of the wrath of God that you and I deserved and that we cannot earn and we cannot do anything about on our own. 
and that he went to the cross after living a perfect life for 33 years. He went to the cross and died for you because he loves you. He sees you in your mess and he sees you and he says, I love you and I gave my life for you. He died and rose again out of the tomb three days later, defeating the power of sin and death for all time. And now he says, come, loved one. I did that for you. Will you come to me? That's your first step of having hope in him. And believers, hey, if you've made that decision, let me talk to you for a minute here. Where are you walking in disobedience to God's word? Where is your life missing the mark? And not submitting to the lordship of Christ in your life. What do you need to repent and be cleansed from? 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins. There's the if. Conditional promise. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Where is that for you today? Where is the lordship of Christ being replaced by the lordship of self? See, Jesus reveals his lordship through his instruction. He offers life to all. And lastly, we see why he can offer life to all. You say, how can I trust that this guy's just not blowing smoke? How can I trust that Jesus can really offer me life through his word? Because we see this through his declaration. He reveals his lordship through his declaration that he has authority over all. He has all authority. And the question that we're confronted with from these last three verses is this. Jesus declares, I am the son of God. But the question we're confronted is this. Will I submit to him as my Lord? Will I submit to him? Look at verses 15 and 16. Go back to the text. 15, 16. The man, after being rebuked by the leaders, what does he do? He went away and he told the the Jews, or after talking with Jesus, my apologies, he goes and tells the Jews that it was Jesus who healed him. He rats Jesus out. Real class act. 16. And this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. See, after meeting Jesus in the temple, the man goes back to the Jewish leaders and tells them that Jesus was the man who healed him. And in response, notice what the leaders do. They begin persecuting him because he's healing people on the Sabbath, breaking their legalistic law that God actually never commanded. Now, the word persecuting there, I wonder if any of there's any hunters in the room, the word persecuting means like a hunter going after big game, to pursue and then to harass. These guys are on a one-way mission to run Jesus out of town by harassing him with hostility and persecution against him. Get him out. Now, this right here is the climax of this whole sign, right here. We thought the healing was amazing, but it is dwarfed in comparison to this statement. Here's the climax. The very thing Jesus specifically wanted people to hear and see about him through this sign, and why he specifically chose to heal this man on the Sabbath. Here it is, ready? Jesus steps up to these guys. He defends himself, and he says, look at 17 and 18. But Jesus answered them, the persecutors, my father is working until now, and I am working. And this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, what's the major point of that statement? He was even calling God his own father, and therefore making himself equal with God. Gasp! 
Jesus Christ declares himself to be equal with God. Notice the term there in 17. He says, my Father. Who's he talking about? God the Father. Remember, God is a triune God. There's one God, three distinct persons. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And up until this point, there was absolutely no one on earth who could say this. My Father, when they prayed. In fact, the religious leaders, when they prayed, they would always say, Our Father. Why? Because my is a term of the closest personal intimacy that you could have with another. And so the Jewish leaders would always say, Our Father. But here's Jesus changing everything that they knew and saying, My Father. Meaning that Christ is united to God the Father in the closest unity possible. Why? Because he's the Son of God. He is the Son of God. As Hebrews 1.3 says, he is the exact imprint of God's nature. He is the radiance of God's glory. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And we have to understand something about this. Why this is so significant. None of the Jewish leaders would argue that God was working on the Sabbath. They wouldn't. They're like, he's got to sustain the universe. We know God's working, but here's the thing. God's the Lord of the Sabbath, so he could do whatever he wants, but he commanded us to do this, so we got to follow this. But God can do whatever he wants. None of them would deny that God was working. Jesus knows that, so he says, my father was working, and now I'm working. What's he doing? Declaring himself to be God. He says, I'm working too. And just as God the Father, listen, like, Just as God the Father was continuing his work on the Sabbath, Christ was working also because he himself is equal with God. Verse 18. And whatever you justify God's work on the Sabbath with, you must use to justify Christ's work. Because he is God Almighty. There's the climax of the sign right there. That's why he did it. That's why he chose the Sabbath. Climax. And we have to realize something. You say, well, wait. How do we know he didn't break the Sabbath? Jesus didn't break the Sabbath law, loved ones. Since God's command to keep the Sabbath didn't stop one from doing acts of mercy on the Sabbath. Just take a rest from your employment. Do acts of mercy. That's loving your neighbor as yourself. That's Leviticus 19.18 when he gave that. But Jesus disregarded. What's he disregarding? The extra biblical laws the Jewish leaders developed. Why? Here's why. Out of mercy. To confront them with their blindness to the truth that he was God Almighty and the Lord of the Sabbath. Mark 2, 27 and 28. Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath. And so now, as we land this plane here, now these leaders, these religious leaders, and you and I are faced with a major decision because of this declaration. And it is this. I love how one commentator put it. Ready? Buckle in. He says, the showdown that had been brewing between Jesus and the religious leaders is now taking place. The religious leaders are now faced with a decision. Hope Bible Church Ottawa is faced with a decision. Will they submit to the authority of Jesus Christ or will they rebel against his authority and choose to live autonomously? That statement. Will they honor Christ's instructions his word, his commands, or will they ignore his commands and elevate their man-made rules and desires above his will? 
Religious leaders are faced with that choice. Loved ones, you and I are faced with that choice today. What will you do with Jesus? See, and how did they respond? Verse 18, it says what? They wanted to kill him. They were seeking all the more to kill him. Because now he wasn't just healing on the Sabbath, making them look bad. Now he's declaring to be God. This was blasphemy to them. Question, is it for you too? Who is Jesus to think he's God? Aren't there lots of different ways to God? And he says, I'm the only way to God. Who is Jesus to say he's God? You and I can have lots of conversations about God in this culture. But mention the name Jesus and things turn quick. This is what Jesus is confronting with them. He's confronting with us today. So loved ones, final question. Today we're faced with the same decision. Will you submit to the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ over each part of your life and believe that he's the son of God? Repent of sin, turn to him, or will you go on living in rebellion against him? And the thing about this is, there's no halfway. It's not like, yeah, I'll have Jesus over the Lord of like my education, but not over my finances because I want to control those. I'll have Jesus as Lord on Sunday mornings, but not over my entertainment because I want to watch that stuff. I'll have Jesus as Lord over my marriage, but not over my parenting. I got to control that. I want to have Jesus as Lord over my relationships because I'm going to heap expectations on people and expect them to meet them, to respond certain ways, and I, and I need control there. Listen, loved ones, will you submit? There is no halfway. Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, he must take up his cross and follow me. Whoever wants to gain his life in this world, you're going to lose it. But whoever wants to lose his life in this world for my sake will gain it. Just let that hang there for a minute. If you're a true believer in this room right now, a true follower of Jesus Christ, not just with your mouth, but in your heart, if you've made the decision to repent of your sin, confess him as your Lord and Savior, let's get real before the Lord before we go to communion right here. Let's get real. Where are you still living in rebellion against him? Where is he not the Lord? What area? What areas? And you're not submitting to him. See, Jesus reveals his lordship through his instruction. He offers life to all and through his declaration that he has authority over all. How will you respond to him today?